Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Today I want to tell you about some gingerbread. I know this sounds a little bit left field, but uh, this isn't just any gingerbread. This is Grasmere gingerbread. So yeah, there we go. If you can see it on the screen. Now, can I, does anyone know about Grasmere gingerbread? Can I see a show of hands? Yeah. Okay. Now put your hand, like keep it up if you know about it because of me. Okay. Just Rosie. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So this Grassmere gingerbread, world-renowned, I'd like to say. Back in 1854, a a lady named Sarah Nelson from Grassmere, based in the true North Cumbria, um, she came from a low-income, working-class background, and she began to make her own recipe of gingerbread that she would sell on the side of the road. So that's this here. And uh, you can see the shop behind it as well. That's the tiny little shop that she made it in and that you can still buy it in today. So the recipe was so innovative and different to anything else that she kept the recipe secret so no one knew how it was actually really made. So you fast forward to today, 150 years later, and you can only buy this gingerbread at that tiny shop where it originated in Grasmere. And actually the recipe itself is still locked in a bank vault to this day and has been passed down through the generations of the family chefs to the point that no other member of staff knows the recipe, just the baker's. So I was on their website as I was prepping this preach, and I just was like looking through the FAQs, and someone had written, where can I get the recipe? And the reply just simply said, you can't, Um, which I was like, sassy, but cool. Um, But yeah, come rain or shine, there is always a queue outside that little shop. And actually, when I was at uni, I'd have like orders from friends that were like, oh, you're going back home, like get me some gingerbread, because it's literally the only place you can get it. And food bloggers and chefs, they've tried to replicate it, because if... Stu, you could go to the next slide. Yeah, I love a zoom in. Um, You can see non-genuine without trademarks. So basically, this is the only one of it you can get. And loads of people have tried to replicate it. Even Jamie Oliver had a stab at it, but failed. Because these are all lesser versions than the actual real thing. And if you've tried it, you'll know what I mean. And if you haven't tried it, come call me when you have tried it. Because, yeah... So the real thing is always better. And anyone who's ever owned a pair of like knockoff Uggs from Shoe Zone, you will know what I mean. I had multiple pairs. Emphasis on the multiple there. And the real ones are always better. Or how many of us during COVID can testify to the fact that FaceTime or video calling Zoom has nothing on being in the presence of someone you love. These things are all shadows of the real thing. And today we're going to be starting a new series on the book of Galatians. And throughout this book, Paul is challenging the churches of Galatia on the true gospel and how we are saved by Jesus alone. There is only one gospel by which we are saved. And everything else, like Jamie Oliver's knockoff gingerbread, pales in comparison. So to give you a little context about the book before we go into it, it's written by the Apostle Paul around 40 to 50 AD, so around 15 years after the crucifixion. And it's to the churches of Galatia, which we now know as modern-day Turkey. And we're in an area where Paul had planted a few churches beforehand. So now the churches were made up of Jews and Gentiles. And we know throughout the Old Testament that the Jews had been brought up believing that God's salvation would come to and through the Jews, the covenant people of God. Jesus came as a fulfillment of it all. And as we're about to jump in, 
the, uh, to the beginning of Galatians, false prophets have come from Jerusalem saying that in order to be saved, yes, you have to believe in Jesus but, and accept him as your saver. However, you also need to, need to continue to live under Jewish law. So you need to be circumcised for the men um, and you can't eat certain foods. Now, these false prophets potentially saw this as welcoming the Gentiles into the Jewish customs, seeing it as a desire for them to become part of God's people through these additional acts. But they were adding to the gospel. And as we're about to read in a minute, Galatians is one of the coldest openings in Paul's letters. The warm greetings that, you know, you read, they put to the beginning of other epistles when he greets them and then he goes on to pray for them and give thanksgiving. It's not present here. And like even at the beginning of the book of Corinthians, when he was writing to a church where there was a man sleeping with his stepmom, he is a lot friendlier. So we really, as we're reading this, it's important to take note of the gravity at which Paul is taking these false teaching, teachings in Galatia at this time. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to... 1 Galatians, and I will read it, and it will come up on the screen as well. We're going to read verses 1 to 9. So Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and returning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse as we have already said, so now I see it, say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Great. So we're going to work through this passage bit by bit. And the first part I want to look at is verses 1 to 2. Um, so the question I want us to ask ourselves is where do we look for spiritual authority? At the beginning of this passage, Paul is stating that his authority as an apostle isn't from men or man, but from God. Paul here is referring to when he became a Christian. For a lot of us, I think we can probably say we first heard the gospel at maybe a conference or maybe it was a preach or maybe a friend or stranger through a discussion. Paul, however, a renowned prosecutor of Christians at the time, had a divine encounter on the road to Damascus which you can read about in Acts 9. After Jesus had ascended into heaven, he appeared to Paul and revealed himself to him. And like Tim, will go into this next week in the next passage. But we know from Paul's testimony that he wasn't sent by any man, but instead from a direct encounter with a risen and ascended Jesus. He knows without a shadow of a doubt that his spiritual authority comes directly from God. For us, though, one asks us, where do we look for it? Often we can find ourselves looking for it through pastors or preachers, maybe worship leaders, influences on social media, maybe conversations with friends, worship songs. While these are all good things, and I can name numerous times that I've had discussions with friends where I've definitely heard the voice of God or a preach that has really spoken to me, our primary source is scripture. Scripture is the true word of God, all of it. And often we can kind of squeeze scripture down to maybe our top 10 favorite verses, the ones, you know, you have framed on a wall or like as your lock screen. 
Um, but are we limiting our theology to simply a nice aesthetic, or are we actually digging in to what God wants to say? Do we glaze over some parts? And if this is the case, what do we do when we do find that Bible verse that doesn't really sit with us as easily? What about the more controversial parts of the Bible, which maybe are on money or sex before marriage relationships, the parts we don't see on an edgy graphic on social media? We can't pick and choose the parts of the Bible we want to keep and the parts we want to ignore. I had a friend who, when we used to talk about these, some of these controversial topics, she would say, that's not my Jesus. My Jesus wouldn't say that. Um, but this concept of you have your Jesus and I have mine, it just doesn't work. Her theology was being moulded, firstly, by her own experiences and other external influences, but not by the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. And Paul was speaking here to the Galatians and to us today with the authority of Christ. Often when we cry out to God to maybe speak into a situation, we can ask him for signs or dreams or visions, a booming voice, which are all good things, but actually... As I said earlier, we have the voice of God like on our laps right now on, on our, in our Bibles. But often we can ask for a more bite-sized or understandable, a more palatable version. And I think in our generation as well, there's a real danger that we can start to look at the Bible as purely a great launching pad or inspiration for some crashing, cracking worship songs, which is not the aim. We can look for direction in our spiritual lives from <coughs> friends and leaders and Christians we see on social media or preachers we watch online before we go to the word of God. And this is when our theology can get a little shaky and maybe a little distorted and diluted. While these, again, like I said, are all good things and important pillars to have in our day-to-day lives, we need to be careful that the order that we place them in is right. And this is what was happening with the Galatians here. They were getting confused, and the gospel was being wrongly preached to them by those surrounding them. They were putting the teaching from the, people, the false prophets above the teaching of the gospel. So knowing that Paul's authority is from the direct source of God, he was then using this authority to speak to the Galatians about the gift of grace, as we go on to see in verses 3 to 5. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that line, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. I want you to just think for a moment about a time that you maybe have needed rescuing in your life. I have countless memories as a kid. I used to love climbing trees. I still kind of do. And I would get stuck up them all the time. And the like phrase of my childhood, this is when you expect me to say like, oh, my dad always came and rescued me. That is not the case. The phrase of my childhood was, you got yourself up there, you can get yourself back down. Um, and more often than not, like, occasionally he was right, but um, occasionally I would actually need help to get myself back down. I would need rescuing. And there was a news story back in 2018, some of you might remember, where a young Thai football team um, made up of like 11 to 16-year-olds and their 25-year-old coach, they were exploring local caves in the Chiang Rai region. And they, were, they went in, <laughs> Matty's nodding because I've never seen the film. Uh, <laughs> they went in and basically the monsoon season came a lot earlier than they were expecting. And as the water began to rise, they got stuck and they were trapped and had to go further and deeper and deeper into the mountain. And I was actually, I was living in Cambodia on the Thai border, 
at this time. And as a church, we were praying for it daily. And we thought the, well, we were praying for the boys to be found, thinking that was the biggest issue. They just needed to find them. Then one week in, thank you, Jesus, they were found. But the next stumbling block was how they were going to get them out. What was the rescue plan? Parts of the cave were incredibly narrow. I think got here, it's estimated like 38 by 72 centimetres, which is like maybe about that by about that. Um, podcast, you have to use your imagination. And not only that, it took around six hours of treacherous diving to reach the boys as well, let alone to bring them back out again. And this was like trained divers. This was like professional divers going through these treacherous six hours of cave. So it wasn't an easy task at all. And meanwhile, the waters were rising and the oxygen level where the boys were trapped was also dropping. They also had limited food sources as well. This was a high-intensity rescue mission. And what is more, the world was watching. And like I said before, there's a great film that came out last year, which is on Prime, and it's called 13 Lives, and it accurately covers the whole of the story. Um, it's very tense, but it's very, very good. Right through to all of the 13 boys coming out alive, which, yeah, I couldn't recommend it more. But the families of those children and the world was waiting with bated breath to see them res- rescued and reconciled with their loved ones, to see them brought out of danger and into safety. Those boys could do nothing to save themselves. They needed a saviour. And just like the Galatians, and it's just like us. And we have a saviour who came to us in our darkest state when we were trapped in a cave of our own sin and wrongdoing, and he rescued us by giving us his own life. This chasm that was blocking us from him wasn't water or distance, but it was our own sin, and he came to reconcile us, to bring us back while we were far off. This is grace. This is what we receive, as Paul said, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. He gave himself up for us, and this is grace, that we can be so far gone, so deeply caught and trapped in our own ways, And he is seeking us out to rescue us. God was so longing for this reconciliation between him and you, his father and daughter, his father and son, that he sent Jesus to die one of the most gruesome deaths on the cross for us, for our sin. So that now our worst actions, our darkest thoughts, our things we said and done, our lust, lies, bitterness, our pride, our anger, aggression... Jesus took on all these things, and it became all these things. Jesus, who was blameless and good and light, became all these darkest parts of us, and he defeated them on the cross so that we can run free and come back home to our Father. So that we can be rescued, not just from this present evil age, as Paul said, but also from the evil within us as well. Something that we have in no way earned, something that we in no way deserve, but instead it's graciously poured out to us because he loves you. Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 9 says, But because of this great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. The theologian John Stott says this, The true gospel is in its essence what Paul called it in Acts 20 verse 24, the good news of God's grace. 
It's good news of a God who is gracious to undeserving sinners. In grace, he gave his son to die for us. In grace, he calls us to himself. In grace, he justifies us when we believe. Nothing is due to our efforts, merits, or works. Everything in salvation is due to the grace of God. This is amazing news. <laughs> it's not based on anything we've done. I can't do anything. I'm rubbish. I fail. I make mistakes. If my salvation was based on my own strength, I would be a lost cause. But it's not based on anything I've done or possibly could do, but everything that God has done. There isn't a bar that you need to reach in holiness in order to receive acceptance and forgiveness. And religion will tell you, do more of this, do less of that, and then you'll be holy. But Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, it is done. The price has been paid, your sins have been forgiven. Draw near to him and receive his grace, love and peace. This is the gospel that Paul was preaching. This is the gospel that Paul was trying to protect. So let's keep this in mind as we move on to the next verses and look at the dangers of distorting the gospel. So I'm just going to read that last part again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, now I say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. We can see in Paul's language here, astonished, how extreme and seriously he is taking this distorting of the gospel. The reintroduction to circumcision with men and prohibiting certain foods in order to be saved was undermining the gravity and power of what Jesus had come to do. So how does this apply to us today? Circumcision isn't something that's particularly practiced or enforced at CCM Fallowfield that I know of. So um, what's its relevance to us? You know, um, if you don't know what circumcision is, don't Google it. Uh, <laughs> and um, so, yeah, we have the same issues. They just look a bit different. So take, for instance, someone has just become a Christian. Someone They've had the gospel preached to them. They gave their life to Jesus. Freedom in Christ. Whoop. Then we take them aside. And we say, great, that's great that you can now become a Christian. Right, now you must read your Bible every single day and pray every single day. You also now need to introduce something known as quiet time. Nobody really knows what this is, but you need to do it. Um, and then also it would be great if you fasted at least once a week. So we've like mapped out this amazing saving grace and then we've listed a bunch of rules that they need to follow in order to be a Christian. These again, while good things, they're not what bring us to salvation. These are things that through the outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we begin to see change in our behavior, our desires, our day-to-day. -day. These things don't qualify us, only the cross qualifies us. But these things can sneak in as quiet additions to the gospel that if we're not careful can go unchecked and do a lot of damage. When I was growing up in the church, there was a really prevalent strain of this, and you might have heard of it at the time, it was called purity culture. And purity culture was a strong focus on abstinence outside of marriage. And while this was directed at both boys and girls, it had a much stronger implication on young women. It taught young girls and women that they were responsible for safeguarding men's sexual desires by being overcautious in what they, the way they dressed, the way they acted, the way they interacted with boys, and to avoid tempting them into sin. 
Then there were things like purity rings that you would wear to publicly show that you were waiting for marriage, or the movement called True Love Waits that had cards that you would sign in declaration. There were multiple books at this time as well, which were written about this and kind of reinforced these outlines and guidelines and rules. One I read personally multiple times. It was called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Um, And these teachings were undermining the freedom of the gospel and ultimately brought shame and condemnation. You almost wore a gold star if you could, a badge of purity, until you messed up and that star was taken away from you. Purity culture introduced rules that you had to live by in order to be saved and holy. And like the Galatians at the time, it was very hard for anyone to notice this. These additions kind of went unchecked until more recent years. Now, yes, we believe that the Bible states that sex is meant for the covenant of marriage. But what happened during the age of purity culture was that it made marriage the be-all and end-all. Virginity became equated with purity And the only reason to pursue purity was for the reward of marriage. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is pointing us to a pureness of heart so that we may see God, so that as the Holy Spirit works within us, he draws our desires to align with his. Within purity, purity culture, the gospel was being distorted, and Jesus was being taken out of the center of it and replaced with rules. And if this is something, this caused a lot of pain for a lot of people over the years. So if this is something that you can relate to or you have ever experienced pain from, I would love to pray with you at the end. Just come and find me. But there are multiple ways that this distortion can come about that we could talk about this morning. We live in a self-made culture at this time, which tells us the more I can do, the more I'm worth. And we can risk as well bringing this into our faith lives, into our serving at church. We can't earn our salvation. The Galatians couldn't do it through circumcision or food laws. We can't do it through increased quiet time, Bible reading, works, or purity culture. Jesus and the cross was and is enough. And often this kind of addition can make us feel quite heavy. And I wonder if there's anyone here today who this story or the the joy of grace, actually just it's, it's feeling heavy. It's not feeling that freedom that it should do. The gospel might have once felt light and brought life, but now you just feel burdened. It's not hitting your heart the same way or something. If it isn't hitting your heart the same way, something or someone has distorted the gospel. And I've experienced it. Around six months ago, I was really struggling with my mental health. And I spoke to a few friends at the time and we kind of came to the realisation that most likely I was going through a season of depression. And during that time, I remember opening my Bible and I was reading Hebrews and I've got one of those Bibles that you know you write alongside and um, 10 years ago me who whenever she wrote it had written next to a passage yay Jesus Um, and I remember looking at that little anecdote or no annotation that's right and I remember thinking I I don't feel that right now I read that I read that passage as though it was like a Hoover manual like I couldn't read it I didn't feel the joy and um wonder that previous me had done I felt such a separation from it and it took a lot of healing work to refine that joy and refine that freedom that grace brings and actually the gospel the passage the bible God hadn't changed I had sorry (laughs) I wasn't expecting this um the good news was still good news And things can creep into your life as a Christian that can very subtly start adding to the message of the gospel or taking away its power. And these things can take away the freedom that the gospel brings. 
can feel like you're being put back into that cave that Jesus brought you out of. Yeah, it can feel like you're putting back on that burden that Jesus took off you and dealt with on the cross. Jesus says in John 10 verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have life to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. 